It's a sunny day in early December in Los Angeles, California. I've flown in from the Midwest on a mission that feels even more surreal than it did when my bosses at Vinyl Me Please told me about it. I'm on my way with some of my coworkers to spend a couple hours in a booth at Capitol Records, as in the Beach Boys recorded here at Capitol Records, with Don Waz, the president of Blue Note Records, the legendary jazz label that I'm sure you're aware of if you're listening to this here podcast. Have you ever been so nervous that you're not actually nervous at all? It's like you're observing yourself being nervous in the corner of a room. That's the situation I was in when I was waiting in the studio, watching our producer Gabe get set up. But then I found out that a certain lead singer of a certain immensely famous classic rock band that would like you to never stop believing had the booth after us. And I realized that I needed to get a hold of myself and just do the interview. I was there to interview Don for a special occasion. In 2019, Blue Note Records turns 80 years old which is an amazing age for a human to turn, nonetheless something as temporal as a jazz record label. Waz has been the president of Blue Note Records since 2012, after a winding career path that saw him co-leading the 80s band Was Not Was, before he produced smash albums by Bonnie Raitt, The Rolling Stones, and many, many, many more. He sort of backed into his job at Blue Note Records after loving the label for close to 50 years, which we get into here in just a minute. Don came to the studio in the most chill leisure wear that you can imagine, and immediately removed any nervousness that I had. He's easily the coolest human being I've ever spent two hours in a recording booth with. He came in and we got right down to business. We are going to discuss VMP Anthology, the story of Blue Note Records, a six-album, seven-LP set that Vinyl Me Please partnered with Blue Note on, featuring what we consider six separate eras of Blue Note, bebop, hard bop, soul jazz, post-bop, fusion, and the jazz of today. Waz picked a couple albums from each era before me and Cameron Schaefer, head of music and brand of Vinyl Me Please, narrowed each era down to just one title. We co-curated this set to be a representation of the story of Blue Note Records, but wanted to tell it with albums that haven't been ever reissued, or haven't been reissued in a very long time. We had them all remastered from their original tapes, and they come packaged over this multi-week experience, complete with liner notes from Ben Ratliff, a Facebook group, uh, a lot of different experiences we'll be telling you about in the next couple weeks. Don and I talk through each album that we've selected its story, why it's special, and what it says about jazz at the time and the future of jazz in each subsequent episode of this four-podcast series. So with that, from Vinyl Me Please and Blue Note Records, this is Mode for Don, the first episode of VMP Anthology, featuring an interview with Don Waz about his history with Blue Note Records, how he ended up as the head of this record label, how he used to ride a bus just to hold Blue Note Records as a teenager at a record store, and why, as always, you should listen to more jazz. Yeah, no, I'm a fanatic. I, I'll tell you, here's how, I, here's how I got hip to it. I was driving, I'm from Detroit, right? Mm-hmm. I was driving around with my mom. I was 14, so I couldn't drive. So I was just keeping her company on a Saturday, and she was returning some library books. And uh, and we parked in front of the Oak Park Public Library, and she left me with the keys to the car so that I could play with the radio. And I landed on the station that was called WCHD, not there anymore, but it was a jazz station in Detroit. DJ named Ed Love, who was still broadcasting, by the way. Still he's, today. He's in his 90s. Wow. Yeah. And Ed Love was playing a song called Mode for Joe by Joe Henderson. 
and I tuned into the station just as Joe Henderson's solo is starting. And it's a saxophone solo, but really that's not, I, didn't, I wasn't hearing a saxophone and notes and reeds and technique. It was a, he was emitting anguished cries from this horn, and I, I could relate to the emotion behind it, and it was startling. I'd never heard anything like that before. And, you know, you can listen to the song Mode for Joe. It's streaming every, it's everywhere, right? <laughs> you find the, the, the album and the song. And check out his solo. It starts out with these cries, and then this drummer, Joe Chambers, who played on a lot of Blue Note records, kicks in, and he's grooving like crazy, right? And it kind of calms him down. He, I'm not saying he becomes passive, Joe Henderson, but he he starts grooving as well. And the message that I got from Joe Henderson from listening to the music was, Don, you've got to groove in the face of adversity. And it really knocked me for a loop because music without lyrics was sending a message deeper than most of the songs with lyrics that were out at that time. It was 1966 or something like that. So I kept listening to the station. I'd never heard the station, never heard any of the stuff. And I went out and bought a uh, like a little transistor radio that had FM so I could listen to the station all the time. And I soon found that a lot of the songs I, I was digging were all coming from this little label out of New York called Blue Note Records. And so we started collecting them, me and, and I had two, two buddies, and, and we we still couldn't drive. We'd get in a bus and we'd ride. We'd call record stores. You know, back in those days, uh, record stores were owner-operated, right? They weren't chains. Right. So every record store kind of reflected the personality of the guy who owned the store, the people who owned the store, right? And uh, so you'd call around and it wasn't like the same stock was everywhere. You'd call and you'd find out that they had a Larry Young Unity. I actually remember getting on a bus and riding for 45 minutes just to look at Larry Young Unity. I, could, I didn't have the bread, which was $4.99 for the stereo version, three ninety nine for the okay. mono. I didn't have the bread to buy it, but I just wanted to hold it uh -huh. and look at the artwork, read the liner notes on the back cover, see who was playing on it. And if you were lucky, you could get the owner of the store to break the shrink wrap and actually put it on for you. But you had to be real nice. <laughs> <laughs> and these records, they, they just stayed with me, and they really started to impact my life. I, I'll, I'll tell you another story about a Blue Note record. Um, one we mentioned earlier, Speak No Evil by Wayne <laughs> Shorter, which is it's highly subjective. But it, in my opinion, it's, it's not the crown jewel. It's one of the crown jewels yeah. of the Blue Note catalog. Jump ahead a few years, I, I was going to University of Michigan, and I hated it. I was, I was miserable. Uh, I moved to Ann Arbor. I wanted to be in a band like the MC5 or the sure. Stooges, and the only gig I could get was playing uh, in a cover band that was doing like carpenter songs at a bowling, <laughs> bowling alley in Ypsilanti, Michigan. So, and I just, I, I hated school. If you were in the music school, it meant you played in the symphony orchestra or you weren't in the music school. They didn't have <laughs> programs like they have now. So I had this insane girlfriend that I met who was my neighbor and she was driving me nuts. And I, I, I was really losing my way in life. <laughs> and I, I was bummed out and I, I had all these plans and all of a sudden I was you know, hitting dead ends everywhere I turned. And what I would do to feel better is I'd go back to the, uh, my bedroom in this apartment that I shared with some guys, and uh, 
I'd put on side two, Speak No Evil. And when that came on, it just, it spoke to me again, soothed me. And it was the same kind of message, by the way, as Joe Henderson. I, I mean, I, I heard Elvin Jones was playing drums, mm-hmm. and he was maybe just a little too aggressive for, for what was going on in this thing. And I loved it because it was like punk rock or something. Mm-hmm. I, I could relate to It was El- like the MC5. It really yeah. was. Same yeah. energy, you know. And uh, I could relate to that. I, I dug that about it. I still dig that about Elvin Jones. And uh, so he's coming out of the left side and Herbie Hancock was playing piano and he's coming out of the right side. And just as much as I could relate to the wildness of Elvin Jones, I could relate to the cerebral nature of Herbie's playing and the sophistication not something to aspire to I, I want to be want to be smart like that guy <laughs> <laughs> but then when Wayne starts soloing it was the same thing it didn't it wasn't notes and I wasn't hearing saxophone playing or technique or anything it was conversation and he was kind of uh, what I envisioned when I and I still do by the way I still listen to that record all the time and I still see the same thing this was now. This was in 1970, maybe, and uh, they didn't have video games. <laughs> but imagine, uh, I picture myself walking down a sidewalk with Wayne talking to me, and he was kind of teaching me to duck and dive. It was just like a video game: obstacles coming at you, mm-hmm. and you had to get around the obstacles and keep moving. Uh, and he was just teaching me to duck and dive through life and not let things. Uh, get me down or stop me. Same thing, groove in the face of adversity, right? Yeah. And by the time we got to the end of that side, which was 15 minutes long, no matter how messed up I was when we started, I felt like myself again. I felt back on track. And by the way, I still, to this day I do. If I, if I have a rough day here at the yeah. Blue Note World Headquarters <laughs> <laughs> and I got a 45-minute drive back to Santa Monica, I'll put that on and I'm good by the time that that second side ends. I'm, I'm back to normal and, and feeling great. And I, I really, it, it had a huge impact on me because I thought, what a noble pursuit, man, to to do that for people, to help remind them of what they're, what they're here for, you know, and to, and to soothe the souls and remind them of, of who they are and feeling, because, t- you know, man, the world's, world's fucking nuts. You know, every, people getting fired, divorced. Mm-hmm. There's very little you can hang your hat on. Right. You're going to hang your hat on Wayne Shorter, Speak right. No Evil. Yeah. Uh, that soothed me my whole life. That's We're talking about f- like 50 years right. <laughs> of At soothing. Point, yeah. okay? And, uh, and uh, I just thought that, that that was something that that made Blue Note special. Those are just a couple of albums. Mm-hmm. But you could find... Uh, strong emotional statements in so much of the of the body work and a long answer to your question i think it's that that right. that accounts for the enduring popularity of the, yeah. the music yeah i think you just gave like the most complete uh, the most, the most complete like answer for why you should listen to jazz yeah, you know that like yeah. that when it hits you like there isn't another music that like can like allow you to interpret it in your own way. Exactly. The thing with jazz is that it 
it is so wide open that like there is there is virtually no limit to how anybody can decide what you know yeah. what this means or what it does for them. And let me add something else here too. Okay. The the biggest misconception I found after eight years of running this label is that people tend to think that before you can even get that subliminal message or find meaning in the songs, you need to have like four years of music theory at Berkeley School of Music. And that's really the mythology I, I love to dispel because it's just conversation. Right. That's all musicians are doing is conversing with each other. Doesn't even forget even jazz. You know, any good music where you hear interplay among musicians, they're just listening to each other and feeding each other ideas and answers, just like you and I are talking. Right. That's the same way musicians play together, right? And if you hear something, yeah, it's just like any party you go to. They're, they're like terrible, boring conversations, <laughs> and they're super stimulating conversations. Mm -hmm. And if you hear something that's not speaking to you, move on and listen to something. Go to another conversation, but don't get discouraged about jazz and don't think you need to understand the theory behind the notes and just let it speak to you. Right. It's for everybody. Yeah. And I don't know where that came you know, at what point that came in, that you needed to have some kind of deeper appreciation of, like, music theory. Yeah, I don't but, know. I, I think there, there's a certain image of, like, professorial guys <laughs> who are smoking pipes and wearing corduroy suits and shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and proselytizing about what's going on. Do you that, ever have, like, old school, like, jazz guys who find out when you're, you know, you and you're the, you know, because you are not the, the standard idea of what... You know, the jazz bow kind of yeah, like yeah, academic. Well, good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know, I mean, I, I, I don't, anyone who finds some beauty in the music, I don't, I don't judge the way they find it. Okay. You know, so I'm, I'm okay with professorial types. I, uh -huh. I just think it, it, it discourages other right. people who aren't like that. You know, I, you listen to it any way you want to listen to it. If you want to, you know, if you, if you want to analyze the music theory, it's phenomenal. It'll blow your mind what these guys are doing. Right. But you don't. If, but let me say this, if you have to analyze it that way for it to speak to you, then it's probably not great music. True. You know, the great yeah. stuff will transcend that. Wayne Shorter, Speak No Evil, will transcend. You don't need to know what's going on. It'll, if you knew what was going on, it would blow your mind, but that's not necessary right. to, to feel anything. At a point, it feels like it's, it's not mathematics. It's art. Like, exactly. you don't need to know, yeah. like, yeah. every breakdown, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk me through how you ended up at as the you know president of Blue Note? Like, yeah. how did that? I, I mean, I'm sure. Did you? I mean, did you ever expect your life when you? I mean, when you were the 16 year old or 14 year old kid in the car? I don't think you would have thought you were the guy never. running the label. Hey, right? man, when I was the day before, I never thought it. <laughs> <laughs> it was, running a record company was never something I aspired to. Uh huh. Uh, I had. Uh, I had a uh, what's the, what's the word for it? It's a caricature vision of what a record company is, and it looks something like the devil. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's we can talk about how that is a misconception, by the way. Mm -hmm. But uh, I didn't particularly dig record companies, and I didn't want to be part of it. I was in New York. I was producing a John Mayer record called Born and Raised, and we took one night off the whole month we were there. Really, you know, and. 
Uh, so I thought, great, night off. Let's see what's happening. I opened Village Voice, and I see that a guy named Gregory Porter is appearing at a club called Smoke up near Harlem on the west side. And I'd heard his first album, and I loved it. And I didn't know anything about him, mm-hmm. but I, wow, man, I love this guy's voice. And so I, I went up there to see the show. And I wasn't there, like, professionally. I wasn't there to, like, talk my way into producing his next record or anything. I just wanted to relax and enjoy music. And I had the best time. It was one of the best shows I'd seen in decades. And I just sat there eating ribs, drinking coffee, <laughs> and I sat through all three sets, and uh, and I loved every bit of it. Next day, I'm having breakfast with a buddy of mine named Dan McCarroll, who I used to know when he was... He, well, he's married to my assistant from the 90s, Jane okay. Oppenheimer, right? But uh, I knew him when he was playing drums with Lloyd Cole in the Commotions, and he was playing drums with Sheryl Crow in the 90s. And he'd become the president of Capitol Records. <laughs> <laughs> and we were just, we weren't even talking about music. We just went out to breakfast and we were chatting mostly about uh, staying calm under pressure. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, at the very end of the breakfast, I said, hey, man, is, is Blue Note Records still part of Capitol? Because if it is, you should sign this guy I saw last night. He's awesome. Uh-huh. And Dan looked at me, and completely unbeknownst to me or really to anybody, EMI, who he worked for, was considering closing down Blue Note Records because Bruce Lundvall, who'd run the company so beautifully for 30 years, was ill couldn't carry on and no one had really stepped forward with a vision of a how to take the blue note aesthetic into the future and i just had, i came in with an idea of to breakfast it wasn't on purpose and he offered me the job right there. <laughs> <laughs> and my first reaction was no don't tempt me with that man i don't want a job my, i spent my whole life trying to avoid work uh-huh. <laughs> that was my goal just don't have to i uh-huh. never i never considered playing or being in the studio i never considered that work that was fun i'd have, i'd have done it for free i'd have paid really <laughs> so but this seemed like a job but what a job right so now he he gave me the dilemma that i had to work out and we walked around uh, new york and uh, you know after about 30 minutes, I, yeah, what the fuck, let's do this, man. <laughs> and uh, I'm so glad I did, man. He he really, uh, I think, I feel like he kind of saved my life with that. It, it opened up a whole new perspective, and it was, he allowed me to embark on a uh, really grand adventure. And I, I loved the gig, and I hope I have it for the rest of my life. You know? Yeah. So, you know, next month, January, is when it's the, you know, official 80th anniversary of Blue Note Records. Um, that's like a really remarkable and momentous anniversary for a mm-hmm. record label. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think about Blue Note uh, has allowed it to endure for 80 years? That's, that's the big question, isn't it? <laughs> when they first hired me to run the label, even though I was a fan I thought, well, I better get to the essence of this. And I talked to a lot of folks, uh, including you know people who'd worked at the label for 20 years and longer. Bruce Lundbaum was still there as the chairman emeritus at the mm-hmm. time. And what became really clear was that uh, if you wanted to run the label successfully, the idea wasn't to go back and make more records like Speak No Evil or something like that. That's already been made. And if you were to go to that 
period in time when Wayne Shorter made Speak No Evil, he was pushing the envelope forward and and that's the essence of Blue Note Records was that we are we are uh, an artist led company and our and the artists uh, do not stand still. They're constantly pushing the threshold of music and and we help them get there and follow them. And that's the common thread. If you really if you if you go back you know, it started out just we were cutting really, you know, just stride piano mm-hmm. records. But within eight years or so, they were recording Thelonious Monk. I mean, they could have recorded any bebop <laughs> that existed, and they chose the most difficult, complex guy. But that, but the, the impact of Monk is still, you know, omnipresent today. So they were really prescient records that they made. And Monk was doing stuff in terms of the nature of his compositions, the n- nature of his chords, just the whole his whole approach to music changed everything. And you jump ahead a few years to Art Blakey and Horace Silver, and they started the Jazz Messengers, and that was kind of the birth of hard bop. Moved everything again. It was mm-hmm. a it was a revolt against what was going on in Bebop. forward uh, uh, another 10 years and, and you got guys like Wayne and Herbie Hancock uh, you know, doing the modal explorations that they were working on with Miles Davis but there's more going on than just that it was a whole approach to music that was different. At the same time they had Eric Dolphy making Out to Lunch Ornette Coleman live at the Golden Circle Even the stuff that seems inside and commercial, like Jimmy Smith, say, which was for a while the commercial backbone of the company. If you if you think about what happened on the B3 before Jimmy Smith and then after him, he was a total revolutionary. It was really experimental exploratory music even though if you listen to it today it, it's become such a part of the vernacular that that you don't see it as, as such and that's always been the case going right up to today and like some of robert glasper's experiments blending hip-hop and, and traditional jazz so the idea was Keep it moving, <laughs> yeah. keep it growing, and and don't look back. And that that's we, we've tried to maintain that over the last eight years. And when it was you know founded eighty years ago, it was by these two you know German immigrants mm-hmm. who 
their mission statement was sort of just they wanted to put out records by jazz guys that they liked to listen to. I think that's right. I mean, if you really, I, I comb through the mission statement, which, by the way, is the my desktop picture on, on my computer, so I'm looking at it all day long. Okay. And uh, what I distilled from it was that they were dedicated to the pursuit of authentic music. It didn't necessarily have to be stride piano, you know what I mean? But it had to come from the heart and it had to be, you know, real, real artists who, who were doing something that, that just had em emotional value and that the label was dedicated to uh, providing uh, uncompromising artistic freedom. Those are all words that are in the Okay. The uh, manifesto that they wrote is a nice lefty manifesto, <laughs> 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 and uh, and and so we try to do that, and it it helped us with the broader definition because someone like Nora Jones sits down at the piano, and she may not be a traditional jazz artist. Or Van Morrison made a number of records for us. He may not be a traditional jazz artist, but he's for real. He's right. authentic, you know, mm -hmm. and. Uh, and he steps up to the mic and delivers, same way as uh, Wayne Shorter. Mm -hmm. And how did you get the manifesto? Did that, is that something that like is bestowed upon you when you get the it's job? Kind of, yeah, it's kind of, you go you go through. You got to get hazed, and it's like pledging for a fraternity. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. How many beer bongs? How many beer bongs did it take first? Right, yeah. took four hundred. Yeah. Right? So that's, yeah. <laughs> And now you're getting to shepherd the, you know, 80th anniversary. Yeah, which is really cool. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, um, I take I take it very seriously. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I have a picture of Alfred Lyon and Francis Wolfe, the two guys who founded the company up in the office, and right below that a picture of Bruce Lundvall. And they're hung and aimed in such a way that they're looking at me at the desk. And uh, that's it, I filter every idea through that lens it they better approve of it mm -hmm. and, and you have the manifesto on your desk i got the manifesto. So yeah yeah you yeah. are very in touch with like the history of the place as you're yeah. i want to do the right thing right a lot of people love this label and and the beauty of it is that there, there are only six of us who work there mm -hmm. and everybody feels the same way everyone uh is really proud to be part of it, and and we are, everybody works really hard. Everyone, you know, to make it in the record business today for a record, just to stay open as a record company, it's all hands on deck. Everybody's got to do three or four jobs, and it's just a great group of people who uh, who want to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. That's great. So I think I guess we can start talking about uh, the box set that yeah, we're good. doing with you guys. Um, I guess to start, like the. You know, the idea with this box set was kind of to tell the story of Blue Note Records mm -hmm. through six, you know, sort of deep cut LPs. Yeah. Uh, and you picked two for each era, mm -hmm. I think. And yes. then we helped narrow. We'd like all, I was part of the team listening to. Oh, like, good. Right. Yeah, figuring out good. which you, ones. We wanted it to be thematic, but we didn't want to... Uh, do what we were talking about with lyrics before and hit the nail on the head mm -hmm. and and so but if you there's a the loose thread running through it is that this being the 80th anniversary of the company in answer to your question what what's the most important thread that runs through 80 years of the blue note ethos 
And I think it's exactly what we talked about, that it's an artist-led label mm -hmm. and that the artists never stand still. The music doesn't stand still. And so every one of these records kind of shows artists in transition moving to something different than what they did the album before. And it kind of, in retrospect, you can see where it aims into where they were going next. But they're all snapshots, beautiful snapshots of uh, a significant moment of pushing the envelope. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what ties them all together. That's the end of the first episode of VMP Anthology, the story of Blue Note Records. In the next episode, Don and I talk about the first two albums of this box set, Horace Silver's Horace Silver Trio and Dexter Gordon's Dexter Calling, albums from the bebop and hardbop periods of Blue Note Records. The next episode will arrive in your inbox soon. Stay tuned to later episodes of this podcast for hints of what albums are next. In the meantime, you can head over to our Facebook group, which you should have received as an invite in an email, or will soon, where you can talk with other fans of Blue Note Records and other people who will be receiving the VMP Anthology box set. This season of VMP Anthology is produced by Gabe Harder with help from Scott Gordon. I'm your host, Andrew Winnestorfer. Remember, listen to more jazz.